this week is Parshas Vayakel Pekude. It's actually the first double Parsha of the year, and it's the last two sections of the Book of Exodus. And it's really interesting. If you read the whole Book of Exodus and you get towards the end, you'll find something very bizarre. We know the Torah does not say needless things. If the Torah could say whatever it wants to say in lesser words and fewer words, it's always going to choose that option, always. In fact, when you study Talmud, part of the exercise of Talmud is to figure out how the Torah managed to say everything it wanted to say in the very few words that it, it conveys. But that principle seems to go out the window when you read the end of Exodus. Because the last five portions, Terumah, Tetzabah, Kisis, they contain really two items, two matters. The first two and a half sections, they are the instructions, the commandments to build the Mishkan, to build the tabernacle, to build this portable temple that's going to be with them for the duration of the Torah. And it's assembling all the materials, and it's describing the the layout and structure of of, of all the uh, of the building of the, of the building itself, and of all the vessels inside of it, and how to build and how to construct the garments of the high priest and the rather the regular priest. All those instructions in the interim, before they do anything, just at the instructions. There's this whole debacle of the golden calf, and then it goes back. It's the implementation, it's the execution of all the instructions that were given in the first two and a half uh, sections. And, and if you read it, it's almost word for word of the instructions. And they did X, Y, and Z. So they were instructed X, Y, and Z, and then they did X, Y, and Z. And two whole Torah portions detailing everything that was told and that was commanded initially. And I could have solved it much easier. All the commentaries asked this question. The Torah could have said quite simply, condensed it all to one or two verses, Moshe and all his cohorts, they built everything from the temple, from the tabernacle to the vessels, to the garments. Everything they did is actually the way the money told them. And if you want to know what the hell the money told them, just you could reference the instruction that was just read several chapters earlier. So one of the questions that all the commentaries asked, why does the Torah go out of its way to delineate every single detail with all the measurements, with all the instructions that were already given earlier in the execution phase. Right. Now that we had the instruction, we're doing it, but we're doing it and we're telling you exactly what we did in the same exact way that we were instructed to do it initially. That's one question. Second question is that if you if you read it, it seems to have kind of a weird, a weird flow. There seems to be a lack of continuity. You have the instruction to build a tabernacle, and then you go back to the sin of the golden calf, which is all the way back to Sinai. And then you go back to the tabernacle. And in fact, Rashi tells us that this timeline is actually not chronological. You had Sinai, you had the golden calf. After the golden calf debacle, you had the instruction, the commandment to build the tabernacle and the execution of that. So we know a principle, Torah is not necessarily in chronological order. But here... The Torah interrupts the events as they happened and intersects the story of the golden calf right in the middle of the whole tabernacle story. So it seems like the Torah is deliberately trying to convey some sort of message by altering the timeline and sandwiching the events of the, gold, of the golden calf in between the instruction and the implementation of the mishkan of the tabernacle. Over Shabbos, I thought of an idea 
that could answer this question, but really could could be maybe what the Torah is trying, the lesson the Torah is trying to convey in this really strange setup of how it's conveying the ideas in the end of, the, of Exodus. So there's a principle that we find in various places of, of Torah literature, of Talmud literature, of Midrashic literature. There's an idea that it, it repeats itself in several different places. And that is that if you want to build something grand, regardless if that's on a personal level or if that's on a communal or a national level, if you want to change something in a big way, to build something great, first you need to flounder. First, you need to fail before you could accomplish anything. So, for example, there is a verse in the book of Micah, in chapter 7, I believe. It says, Let my enemy not be joyous over me, because I fell, but I arose, says the Talmud. What does this mean? If I did not fall, I would not have risen. A necessary precondition of the future growth and future greatness is the earlier missteps. And then it says further, or I sit in the darkness of God, but then I have light. Again, says the Talmud, if not for the fact that I had the earlier darkness, I cannot have had the later light. The trajectory towards success and greatness, it's not just a straight line up. Inherently, it has to have that there's earlier missteps and earlier blunders that lead to the future rise. And there's another famous idea that's found in many places in the Talmud. It talks about the idea of lishma. Lishma could probably easily be translated as altruism. But it's also a code name for the goal of our relationship with God and with Torah. And that is that it's supposed to be, we're doing it for its reason, for its intention, for its motivation, not because we want to get some sort of side benefit. Like I could say, I'm doing a mitzvah, so my wife will think I'm a good guy. Or because I'll get reward in the afterlife. There's a lot of reasons why we could say I'm doing a mitzvah. But ultimately, the objective is that you're trying to do it for its own inherent reason. The Almighty says, do it, and you do it because you want to do what's right. That's the ultimate idea, says the Talmud. However, as a practical matter, says the Talmud, you should always do things. You should study Torah, do mitzvos, do things even for their imperfect intention, for unaltruistic reasons. Why? Because through doing things in an imperfect manner, you'll eventually come to doing things in a perfect manner. And the commentaries explain that it's not possible to leapfrog the earlier stages. The earlier stages where things are done and they're not they're not really right. Someone's studying Torah. Why are they studying Torah? So their friends think they're really clever. Is that right? That seems wrong. You're studying God's Torah. You should be studying, you're studying God's Torah because you're supposed to do it. And in fact, the, the commentaries tell us how really repulsive and despicable it is to do something, to do a mitzvah, not because God said, because for some other reason. However, that is one of the necessary stepping stones to get to the, few, to, to the destination. And the example given by the commentaries is that suppose 
someone tells you, okay, I want you to go to the loft and get some hay down or go to the attic and get me down my suitcase or whatever. You have to go up some high, some, to some high place to get something, to retrieve something. And you take a ladder. Could the person possibly blame you for going on the lower runs before you go to the higher runs? Of course not. The only way to get to the higher runs is by going on the lower runs. If you try to jump, you're going to fall and collapse and hurt yourself. It's not possible. Similarly, in every growth that we have in our lives, we're going up a ladder and the lower runs have to be done and climbed before we get to the higher runs. And what do the lower runs look like? There's mistakes. There's blunders. There's things that are done imperfectly. It Things go wrong, but all that is necessary to get to the top. The Talmud even tells us something really surprising in the book of Gittin. Ein Adam Omed al divrei Torah. A person does not understand the words of Torah. Ella im Kain nichshalba. Unless you make first a mistake. It's not possible for someone to get it right away. If you can't, it's not possible. The only way for someone to acquire Torah is you first, you study it and it doesn't, it, you, you make a mistake. You don't understand it. You got, you got it wrong. And only then can you get it right. Again, the same idea. First you have to fail and only, and, and, and the failure is one of the steps. It's not like the failure is, that's part of the ladder. Part of the ladder is failure, 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 and you're actually climbing the ladder. You think you're failing, but really you're climbing the ladder. I think there's also a subtlety here. Not only is failure inevitable, but failure, the way it's being described here, it's part of the steps of growth. So the failure is actually enabling the future success. That Again, if, if the, the first five runs, whatever, of the ladder are failure, you're actually climbing. To get to the sixth run, you have to go through five runs of failure. There's a very famous verse in Scripture that the righteous person falls and flounders seven times, but rises again. Sheva yipol tzaddik come. Seven times does the righteous person fall, and then, he, and then he rises. So that seems initially to imply that even though he floundered seven times, because he's righteous, he gets up. That's what it seems to imply, but I think there's a deeper point here. No, the first seven runs are failure. It's not just incidental that, oh, he, even if you fail, you could still make up for it. No. The only way to achieve the greatness is by earlier failure. That's the only way to do it. And therefore, that's not it. the first seven runs are failure. But that is, in fact, part of the growth. That's enabling the future growth. This applies also on a collective scale. There's a very famous teaching in the Talmud in several places that describes the world as six 1,000-year experiment. Now, it's important for us to mention, get this out of the way, that when the Torah describes the world and the timeline, it's beginning with Adam, but more specifically, it's beginning with Adam after he sinned. What happened before Adam and what happened before Adam sinned is not part of the timeline. So that's why if someone asks, well, how does the Torah timeline, how does that coexist with the accepted scientific time? It's a diff- We're not talking about the age of the universe. It's the age of the world in the way it's currently constructed. And the way it's currently constructed only begins with Adam, but specifically with Adam after his sin, before his sin, different ballgame altogether. That's not part of our, of our world. That's a different world. Different realities, different humanity, different construct. Everything's different. 
Talmud says 6,000-year experiment. According to Jewish sources, we're in the year 5,778 of that experiment. But the Talmud actually breaks it down. It's not just 6,000 years. It's three modules of 2,000 years apiece. And then more specifically, this 2,000 years of tohu, of emptiness, of desolation, this 2,000 years of Torah, and this 2,000 years of Mashiach. And this is a process, again, similar to a ladder. We start off with tohu, with desolation, with spiritual void, spiritual vacuum, spiritual emptiness. And then we have 2,000 years of Torah. And then we have 2,000 years of, well, Torah is, is God's wisdom in the world. But Mashiach, the, the 2,000 years of Messiah, that's a certain ubiquity of this principle. And this is describing the world as a general entity achieving its perfection. The way the Talmud breaks this down is that the 2,000 years of desolation, and that actually leads to the next stage, 2,000 years of Torah. But the 2,000 years of Torah is also lacking because it's Torah without Messiah. Now, what these things mean is a big question. Uh, what does Messiah mean? Messiah is obviously not just an individual. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an era. It's a process. But simply put, this is describing the changing face of the world with respect to how it relates to God. 2,000 years of desolation, God's not present in the world. 2,000 years of Torah, God is present in the world, but only amongst the Jewish nation. The rest, of the, Jew, the rest of the world, they're all pagans. They don't believe in God. 2,000 years of Messiah, that's where there's a shift, where the Jewish ideals, the Abrahamic ideals, start becoming accepted in the greater world. And the culmination of that is where the entire world recognizes God. So, what, so, so back to our core idea. In order to achieve something great, you have to first flounder. In order to get to Messiah, you have to first get through 2,000 years of tohu, of desolation. My grandfather actually said this idea with respect to the modern state of Israel. Some people say the modern state of Israel, well, that's the completion of the Messianic prophecies. Problem is, if you actually compare the secular state of Israel, certainly at its earlier stages, to what the prophets describe, it seems very different. But to say that it's not a harbinger of the Messiah is also, I think, pretty ludicrous to say the fact that there's 6 million Jews in Israel when 100 years ago there were maybe, I don't know, 60,000 Jews in Israel. A remarkable 100-fold increase in the amount of Jews living there and more Jews going there and it's growing and it's strong. To say that it has nothing to do with a future Messianic era is also preposterous. So which one is it? The answer is, is that that's how it has to happen. This is part of a, of a process. You start off, and there has to be tohu, there has to be desolation, there has to be emptiness in order to get to the, to, to the idea of Messiah. So is it? Not yet, but it will be. It's, it's part of some process. You have to fail, you have to flounder before you succeed. So let's get back to the tabernacle. You look at the Mishkan, and you read it, and you have all this meticulous planning, coordinating, all this effort to have this major project. And what's the objective of the project? Make for me a tabernacle and I will dwell among you. We're bringing God into our world. Amazing plan. And you're sure, if you just read the, you read it in order, everything's going to go swimmingly. Under budget and ahead of schedule. It's going to be fantastic. And you read it and it details everything you need to do. Amazing. Let's go. And then what happens? You read about the worst sin of the Jewish nation ever. A nation 
read quite simply. Again, the golden calf is a separate issue of exactly what they did and what their mistake was. It's a, it's a big question. But simply put, they were seeking idolatry of some form or another. And they made a huge mistake. And what happened? They want to bring God into the world? They want to bring an idol into their world? Which one is it? It seems so bizarre. It seems like it's a massive step down. Comes along the toe and says, okay, no. You should know this is the way it has to happen. Every project that, ha- that has to happen has to have its initial golden calf. The golden calf is one step of the, the, you have big plans. You should know you have to walk through the, the field of fire of the golden calf in order to get to the end game. But what happens after the golden calf? It details everything that was planned initially. All the dreams will be accomplished, but it's not going to be necessarily smooth along the way. Everything the way it was conceived, every process, exactly, all the vessels, the tabernacle, the structure, it goes through everything by detail. Nothing was lost by this misstep along the way. The Torah wants us to know that to build anything, you need to, the first steps of every great project are blunders. And that is, in fact, steps towards the growth. And that's not going to diminish the future greatness. Because the future greatness will happen exactly the way it was conceived earlier, provided that you power through the resistance. 